Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and thank you for turning into another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm Dan Rundy, and joining me today is Dr. Richard Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is currently a professor of international political economy at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. He has more than four decades of experience working on issues at the intersection of foreign policy, globalization. He's been in public service. He previously was a non-resident senior fellow in the Latin American Initiative at the Brookings Institution. He served in the Clinton administration, where he was special assistant to President Clinton for national security affairs and senior director of the National Security Council's Office of Inter-American Affairs. Since 2005, Dr. Feinberg has also written more than 300 reviews for the Western Hemisphere book review section of Foreign Affairs Magazine. I don't know how you have the time, Dr. Feinberg, to read all those books. I'm (laughs) envious. But most importantly, and the reason I wanted Dr. Feinberg to join us today was in April of 2021, Dr. Feinberg published a really interesting report entitled Widening the Aperture, Nearshoring in Our Near Abroad. I really like this report and I really like this idea. The report explores the future of the economic relationship between the United States and the greater Caribbean basin and explores what this relationship might mean for supply chains and bilateral trade arrangements. The report also considers the impact of the Biden administration's new domestic economic plans that those plans might have on the region. Dr. Feinberg, thanks for joining us. It's really great to see you again. And thank you so much for your interest in my latest report, uh, and I really appreciate it. Tell us first about you. How did you get to UC San Diego and becoming the book reviewer of the foreign affairs? I read your book reviews. More seriously, I read all of your research and I just think you're always on point. So how did you get to where you are? I know folks are always curious about that. Thanks for asking. Well, it really goes back to uh, the Peace Corps. So uh, this is the late 1960s, early 70s. You'll recall uh, the United States was engaged in uh, wars in Southeast Asia. Uh, As a young man, I couldn't quite picture myself going from the streets of New York City to uh, running around with a rifle in rice paddies in Southeast Asia. So there were alternatives that were offered. uh, And one of them was to join the Peace Corps, which I was happy to do. I was always interested in seeing the world. And the Peace Corps chose to send me to Chile. And this was a very dramatic time in the history of Chile, as you know, uh, with uh, dramatic social reforms, mass political mobilizations on the street. So I was very immersed in all of that because it ended tragically and that in itself had important lessons uh, for myself. But what I saw in Chile was how social scientists were very engaged in public policy, both in, in the design and the execution. So I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I think I'd like to do that. So from there, I decided, okay, I needed to up my game a bit. So I I went to study uh, economics at Stanford, and then I immediately uh, beat my path to Washington, D.C., so I could be engaged in public policy. And as you know, and that's where we met, uh, you and I, I spent the next 20 plus years between various government posts and the think tank world in Washington. It was all very exciting. And from there comes my interest in all of these topics of foreign affairs and specifically international economics and Latin America. 
So tell us about your report. I gave kind of the bumper sticker, but why don't you give your version of the bumper sticker about your report? And remind us the title again. Frank Lund says you got to repeat a title seven times for people to remember it. Right. Politics is all about repetition. So uh, it's the title is Widening the Aperture, Nearshoring in Our Near Abroad. The near abroad concept is that uh, large countries, powerful countries uh, surrounded by smaller countries, those smaller countries are it's near abroad. And the Chinese take good care of their Southeast Asia and the countries that ring them. Russia is famous, of course, for being concerned with its own near abroad. This is the normal behavior. Now, uh, the United States... Our near abroad is Central America, the Caribbean. You might include Mexico and then uh, and Colombia and Venezuela. So that's the broader Caribbean. So my argument is that really we need to uh, focus as a great power. If you're if we're constantly bogged down with problems from instability, uh, political or economic uh, in the region, that generates all sorts of negative feedback into our economy and society. Plus, uh, it distracts policymakers from a more global perspective. So therefore, we need to do better. In the, in the region. Now, there are a number of trends that come together that have caused policymakers to focus on the region. Immigration, because of its domestic political implications, but also the opportunity, reshoring, nearshoring. The pandemic has underscored something we were already concerned about, in part because of China, is that these very long supply chains extending all the way into Asia, while they're efficient in many respects in terms of cost competitiveness, do involve a number of downsides. And one of those is openness to disruption, many sorts. They can be political, natural catastrophes or pandemics, as we've seen. So the idea of bringing back some of those supply chains, not all to be sure, but some and switching them. So the initial impulses are bring them back to the United States. But, you know, we're just not cost competitive in many of these areas. But the Caribbean Basin, yes, Central America and the Caribbean islands could be competitive sites for uh, locating some of these supply chains. That's a, a major incentive behind my paper it says, look, what can we do with the United States to create the conditions in our trade and investment policies and with regard to uh, economic reform in Central America and the Caribbean to move more of these supply chains close by in our own near abroad? Well, I love it. So I've done a thousand Zoom calls since March 12th of 2020. And, and this we're doing this in early June of 2021. I've had several takeaways from my thousand Zoom calls, and I won't go through all of them here, but I'll go through two of them. One is whatever your social capital was on March the 12th, 2020 is sort of kind of what your social capital is on June the 1st, 2021, only because it's been hard to meet new people and connect, if you can put it that way. The second is related to this, which is the West is going to get some kind of partial economic divorce from China. So you're going to see tectonic shifts in global supply chain. So in my mind, the net winners of this should include the Caribbean, Central America, Mexico, potentially Colombia. These should all be net winners in those shifts. But I think your point is we ought to kind of take advantage of that. I would be very open to using our foreign aid as a lubricant to kind of lubricate that. We've had kind of an ADD relationship with the Caribbean and Central America. We only sort of pay attention to it when there's a problem, if you will. And there have been other approaches to this. The Caribbean Basin Initiative under the Reagan administration is fairly fondly remembered, if I can put it that way, especially in the Caribbean. Are you, in essence, calling for a CBI 2.0, if you will? So first, let me respond to your point about infrastructure. That's critically important in terms of competitiveness, in terms of attracting supply chains. Yeah, you have to be competitive with regard to labor costs. But you also have to have the infrastructure 
so that the parts, the components that you're bringing in, the more finished parts that you're shipping out, there have to be, you know, ports, roads, airports, trains, and electricity, which is uh, too costly in a number of the countries we're talking about. So you have to look at the, the complete ecosystem of production. And yes, there, uh, the U.S., both in, in terms of our traditional assistance programs, but also Biden, of course, has been talking about a huge infrastructure initiative, several trillion dollars, perhaps, depending upon uh, the wisdom of our Congress. And uh, my thought was, you know, if we think of the Caribbean Basin as really our near abroad, as an extension of our geopolitics, why not devote a small portion of those infrastructure funds to what, after all, will lubricate the American economy as well, but to the Caribbean basin. And then, of course, the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank uh, have a lot of long-term expertise in uh, building infrastructure. So uh, all that has to be part of it, yes. Uh, in terms of uh, U.S. foreign policy in the region, you know, some people uh, often new to the game say, oh, the United States has ignored the region not having read one book or one paper on the subject, because <laughs> that's an easy throwaway. Yeah, U.S. Uh, policy, it's been, let's say, intermittent, but it would be uh, incorrect to say that, uh, you know, we've totally ignored the region. 60th anniversary this year of the Alliance for Progress. Yeah, which is well worth going back and taking a look at, because then I got to tell you, a lot of the language that we use today, you can find in the documents of the Alliance for Progress in the early, early 60s. So the question is, why didn't the Alliance do better? Very interesting topic. But in any case, that was one example of U.S. interest. Then uh, in the 80s, for better or for worse, we did begin large-scale assistance programs in response to the Nicaraguan Revolution and, and other political instability. And that's when we launched the Reagan administration, the Caribbean Basin Initiative, which was meant to uh, you know, give uh, the countries. Uh, duty-free access to the U.S. market for many, although not all, products. That then was followed up with NAFTA, an initiative initially of Bush, and then finally it was the Clinton administration that got it over the goal line. That was, of course, a huge initiative. It's important to understand how important that was because, you know, up until that time, the United States believed in global trade agreements. Uh, so the idea of doing an agreement with just one or two countries was largely anathema in U.S. trade circles, if you recall. And USTR was not happy when President Bush said, yeah, let's go ahead and do this. They obeyed the president, but it wasn't their first choice. And uh, the U.S. Uh, NAFTA, of course, was important because it was really the first uh, bilateral uh, free trade agreement with a developing country. So that really broke ground. Then that was followed up by CAFTA-DR, Free Trade Agreement with Central America and the Dominican Republic in the 2000s. And that, again, was a, a very important initiative, which has had some positive results. It has to be understood that none of these trade agreements are silver bullets. They don't solve all problems, uh, which sometimes the critics uh, argue, oh, well, well, you had a free trade agreement. Why didn't that eliminate poverty in southern Mexico? <laughs> you know. So, yes, there has been uh, important episodic initiatives uh, to help spur more development in the Caribbean and Central America. Also, let's not forget, you know, we tend to focus on U.S. programs, but the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, the IMF uh, have put a lot of resources, technical assistance, uh, as well as uh, financing uh, into the region over the years. And, that, and of course, the U.S. plays a major role in those institutions. It's the 60th anniversary of AID. It's the 60th anniversary of the Alliance for Progress. Far more fondly remembered is the Alliance for Progress. The President Duque referenced it in a conversation I had with him about two months ago. Prompted me to write this article that I did in The Hill about the 60th anniversary of the Alliance for Progress and that we could learn a lot. I also think the Alliance for Prosperity of the Obama administration is a very good jumping off point for Central America. The diagnostics are all there. So I think it's a question of political will. And like you said, it's been intermittent. 
I would also argue that President Biden is the most prepared president in American history as it relates to Central America and the Caribbean. He made eight trips to Central America as vice president, eight additional trips to the Western Hemisphere as vice president, and has made up many other trips. So I think we have the first Caribbean American vice president. We've got any number of different members of Congress, R&D, who are from the Caribbean or represent Caribbean diaspora in their districts. So I think there's a real political window here. So I thought that was also what prompted me to reach out to you is I thought, okay, I think the political timing is really good. Could you talk about some of the most pressing issues like for the greater Caribbean community? What are the things that are sort of on the radar? By the way, in terms of your uh, the importance of the diaspora from Central America and the Caribbean and the United States, we can start off with the vice president. Right, exactly. Whose father hails from Jamaica. And I got to tell you a quick little secret, Daniel. Kamala's father, Donald Harris, was my PhD thesis advisor at Stanford University. That's wild. What a small world, right? So you talk about two geopolitical threats. What are they? Long-standing problem, and it's actually gotten worse in the Caribbean basin, uh, is the problem of narcotics or counter-narcotics. Uh, it's gotten worse, perhaps, because of the, the well-known balloon effect. So, you know, if you if you reduce some of the counter-narcotics production, let's say in Colombia or in parts of Mexico, where does it go in terms of particularly transit points? And the cartels have found that they can move their products uh, through Central America or parts of the Caribbean with relative impunity because the security forces are weak, the governments are weak, and that's what's happened. And um, this has actually sadly gotten worse, it seems, uh, in the last decade or so. So when policy is not working, I say, well, why do we keep doing the same thing if we'll get the same results, right? But the issue of counter-narcotics is a politically loaded issue, and most politicians in the U.S. uh, really don't want to touch it. Personally, I think decriminalization, which we've already started in the area of cannabis, that's how you take money out of the cartel business. But that's that's very much uh, you know down the road. So in the meantime, the obvious responses are you know reinforce your security apparatus and improve your intelligence. But it's tough going, and there's a hesitancy in much of the region to beef up security forces because uh, a lot of their historical problems were rooted in uh, military dictatorships that endured for many decades. And so there's a fear of going back to that if you put too much money into the security apparatus. So it's really quite a conundrum. Then uh, from the geopolitical point of view, of course, the question of China. Now there, your earlier question about infrastructure, the region needs infrastructure. And a lot of these Chinese projects are about infrastructure. So um, I think it's a mistake for the U.S. government, as uh, Secretary Pompeo used to do, go down to Latin America and say, oh, the Chinese are coming in, you know, to rip you off. Like, and then he used language which the left traditionally used about U.S. investments in the region. <laughs> I thought that was so amusing. Um, is there no historical awareness, uh, at least among his speechwriters? <laughs> I mean, how the message would be seen and perceived in the region. So I think the answer is even governments very friendly to the United States and want to maintain their strong ties to the United States uh, do see certain advantages of uh, some investment for infrastructure that can support supply chains that actually export to the United States as advantageous. Whether the Chinese will be able to leverage their investment into diplomatic influence, there, you know, the United States is still so overwhelming in comparison to anything that you're going to likely to see from China. And we have the huge advantage of geographic proximity. The elites, political, economic elites in the region are usually very closely tied to the United States. Many of them have relatives, condominiums, you know, in Houston or South Florida. So I don't see them all of a sudden uh, becoming close allies of Beijing. But in any case, 
to the extent that we feel the need to compete with Chinese encroachments, the answer is not to you know, threaten countries that if they do business with China, we're going to knock them over the head, but rather to put more on the table. And that's precisely what my proposals are arguing for, uh, strengthen our ties with the region through uh, mutually advantageous and productive investment programs. We have to enable an alternative. We can't tell countries, just don't do this. We have to enable an alternative. One of the interesting things about the greater Caribbean region is, is it's the region with the most diplomatic ties to Taiwan. What role does Taiwan play in all this? Uh, well, first of all, the, ta- the Taiwanese connection, a lot of it's, it's rooted in history. Sometimes, said to say, Dan, it's rooted in graft. <laughs> I mean, the Taiwanese don't mind paying governments off to maintain those relations. And some of those have become public and uh, ended up with senior leadership uh, in jail in the region. More positively, Taiwan, of course, is part of the supply chains. And you have quite a few Chinese firms that have investments uh, in the region that, uh, you know, assemble products and then ship them uh, in large measure to the U.S., sometimes to Europe, sometimes back to Asia. So as an investor, uh, Taiwan uh, does have a very useful and ongoing role to play. Finally, I wanted to ask about technology. It seems to me that technology has a lot to offer here in terms of sort of how we engage. I just think it's a different ball game, whether it's digital, whether it's new forms of energy or advanced manufacturing. Talk a little bit about that. Well, first in terms of uh, digitalization of the region and uh, uh, FinTech and all of this, that of course can so dramatically bring the world into small towns and rural areas uh, all around the region. Kamala Harris and her new uh, call to action initiative, Partnership for Central America, is partnering with Microsoft already and I'm sure other companies will jump in to provide those uh, digital services. They're important in terms of raising living standards and opportunities, but they're also critical. I mean, you can't expect companies to invest in your region and be part of supply chains if you're not well connected digitally to the world. Uh, So all of that, you know, is part of a bundle. So, yeah. Now, in terms of uh, technology, the region is all the way from low tech in terms of just cut and sew apparel uh, firms. All the way, if you go down to Costa Rica or the Dominican Republic, uh, you can work and walk into factories that are producing all sorts of medical devices, you know, that are super advanced. Uh, so you have, you know, a range of technologies in the region. Of course, the goal is to increasingly educate the workforce, both uh, operators as well as uh, middle management and senior management, so that their productivity rises and the region can gradually, you know, move up the value-added chain to more prosperous and more complex production procedures. We were talking earlier about sort of the diversity within the greater Caribbean. There's some upper middle income countries. We also have U.S. territory. We have Puerto Rico as a free associated state is smack in the middle of the greater Caribbean region. So you've got all this diversity. I have a particular interest in the Dominican Republic, which is a member of CAFTA DR. It shares an island with Haiti. It's certainly Caribbean, but it's divided a little bit by language because they speak Spanish and a lot of the Caribbean speaks English. Talk about the diversity and talk specifically about the Dominican Republic, if you would. In terms of the diversity, the actual diversity in the region has gotten greater over the years as some countries uh, have stagnated, such as Haiti, such as uh, 
Nicaragua. Other countries have uh, ex accelerated the development and really done quite well. Costa Rica, it's worth mentioning today, Dan, that today, as we speak, Secretary of State Tony Blinken should be arriving later today in San Jose, Costa Rica, to meet with the Costa Ricans, of course, but all of the cent his Central American counterparts that the Costa Ricans uh, have invited, that is to say, the CAF, the DR, including the Dominican Republic, as well as uh, the Mexicans. And I think this was a very smart move because just focusing on the Northern Triangle, those are the most difficult cases the quality of the governments are not good. In fact, we're busy sanctioning uh, some of their leaders for corrupt practices and the violation of human rights. So it's a sort of a frosty relationship between the United States and the Northern Triangle. Bringing Costa Rica, a good friend, a good ally, and a success story, uh, a model. Yes, guys, it is possible in the isthmus uh, of Central America to do well. We have an example. This is not theory. Look at Costa Rica. And they just got into the OECD, only the fourth Latin American country to achieve that. A really a remarkable milestone, and I, I celebrate uh, the Costa Ricans for that achievement. But yes, I think it was great for Tony Blinken to bring in Costa Rica so that it's not just the U.S. on one side of the table and the northern tier and back and forth accusations. Let's bring in the Costa Ricans who will basically agree with us on issues, but are also uh, from the region and an example of success. Now, I would say, similarly, not quite as uh, dramatic, but the uh, Dominican Republic uh, is not doing badly. You know, Dan, I also spent quite a bit of time there in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, I had in my mind some of the images from the, you know, the Balaguer era and all. Now, they, they've moved uh, dramatically forward. They have a very vibrant supply chain set of investments there in, in a whole series of uh, uh, free trade zones. The free trade zones, as you probably know, are, are scattered throughout the country. So it's not just adding wealth into the capital city of Santo Domingo, but really uh, throughout the country, creating good jobs uh, that are linked to globalization and, and modernity. Uh, so that's the good news. Uh, they still have a way to go, yes, uh, but they have a promising new government that very much believes in uh, you know, the importance of, of supply chains and global competitiveness that definitely want to work closely with the United States. Uh, so I think that's a, a promising addition to have the, the Dominicans sit, uh, sitting around the table. They also have, I know, some you know, high quality people in the current government. Uh, so that's good, including the president, the foreign minister, who's an old friend. My report actually, widening the aperture, uh, highlights uh, the success story of the Dominican Republic uh, to show that, yes, not saying all problems have been solved, uh, but there have been important advances, uh, and the Dominican Republic uh, illustrates that, that possibility. Well, Dr. Feinberg, I really appreciate you coming on today and speaking with us. I share your view that there's a real opportunity for us to engage with the greater Caribbean and to think about the greater Caribbean and partnering with them economically and deepening our trade ties with them and also leveraging our development and as well as leveraging our diplomacy, there's a number of reasons why we should be optimistic. And I think your report's quite timely. So I want to congratulate you on it. I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, remind folks the name of the title and where they can get their report, Dr. Feinberg. The title is Widening the Aperture, Nearshoring in Our Near Abroad, published by the Wilson Center. So if you go on to, I think actually if you just Google the title, you can find it. You could also find it on the Latin American program of the Wilson Center. Then if I could add just one more point. Sometimes when people hear supply chains, they have the idea, oh, sort of sweatshops and factories, you know, in China. 
Well, there are some bad factories in China, I'm sure. But from my own experience in the Caribbean basin, in the Dominican Republic, for example, around Central America, over the recent decades, there really have been major efforts largely by U.S. brands, that is to say the, the big companies that are buying these products, uh, to make sure that fundamental labor standards are adhered to within those factories. They send in their auditing teams. They work with local auditors. Uh, they publish lots of reports. It's more and more transparent. Again, m- more could be done. And I think if we have a really strong social compact, which I advocate in the report, between the United States and the countries of the region that say, look, yes, Here's what you need to do to attract more investment. Part of that, and here's what the United States can do. So we have a social compact. Part of that is maintaining good labor standards and good environmental practices throughout these supply chains. That can be done, and uh, particularly if you have the U.S. government involved, but also the brands, their capabilities, their auditing practices, etc. You can ensure that, that there are sort of good labor standards. And here, I think the U.S. Congress uh, engagement is also uh, potentially valuable because a lot of members of Congress are concerned with these sets of social and environmental issues. Uh, I had the opportunity to brief uh, about two dozen congressional staffers on this report. I found a lot of interest. And my final point, Dan, I noticed that in the confirmation hearings, who presumably would be the future Assistant Secretary of State for Latin American Affairs, Brian Nichols, uh, he was asked uh, specifically about uh, the issue of supply chains. Uh, both by um, Senators uh, Tim Kaine from Virginia uh, and also uh, Haggerty uh, on the Republican side. We want to know more about what the United States is going to do to uh, promote supply chains in the Caribbean basin. And uh, the nominee, uh, Brian Nichols, said, yes, sir, I'll I'll be getting back to you on this. So I thought uh, there you had some both congressional and executive uh, interest in seeing how this issue of uh, global supply chain and investment can be an important tool to promoting development in the region and closer U.S. ties with the Caribbean basin. Dr. Feinberg, thanks for being on today. This is great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your invitation. Great to see you, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, the Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 